Good morning again. I mention every now and then how amazing it is to me that uh, I do not coordinate with Stephen or anyone else on what the sermon topic is going to be and what songs get chosen. Um, they pray about that process and I pray about the sermon and hopefully they're praying about the sermon and I'm praying for their process. But there's no uh, human coordination and it always amazes me that uh, without exaggerating, I would say if you really absorbed all the songs we've been singing today um, and, and took them home with you and pondered them and applied them, uh, for the most part, you would have the sermon. You would really already have the sermon. We're looking at continuing in Jesus' prayer for us out of John 17. So if you'll turn there for a moment. And I'm going to focus on just one verse out of this uh, prayer. And as Jesus is interceding for the disciples and through them, he says he's also interceding for us. And he's been praising God and, and thanking God for the for the father-son relationship that they enjoy, and then praying different aspects of that father-son relationship now imparted to us as the sons and daughters of God. Uh, and he intercedes for us in a variety of areas. But look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And this is a slight variation on this aspect of intercession, that here Jesus is interceding for us, but he's interceding for us by just a declarative statement of agreement between him and the Father. And he's saying, Father, you sent me into the world. And this concept in this prayer is really important. If you look at verse 3 of chapter 17, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And in verse 8, the words which you gave me, I've given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. And the verse we just read, and then go to verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And drop down to 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And in verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I've known you, and these have known that you sent me. And Jesus, by by emphasizing this word throughout this actually pretty short prayer over and over again Jesus is clarifying there was something real intentional about my arrival here so we have we have God on earth in other mythologies and other religions Zeus comes to earth 
disguises himself as a variety of things. Other gods in various mythologies disguise themselves, come down to planet earth. But Jesus is saying, you know what? When I came to earth, I came with a purpose. You sent me. And, and just a few days before this prayer, when Jesus was in anguish over what was coming, over his impending death, and he's discussing with his disciples, you know, should I ask to be saved from this purpose? And he goes, no, this is the very purpose for which I came. And so we already know that and we already believe that. Jesus came with a purpose. The Father sent him. And, and we've talked about this before, and I, I, think it's a, I think it's a true vision, even though we're just putting human imagination to something real, and our imagination of it will be limited. But that somehow there was this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit convocation. There was this unity of the, of, of the heart and mind and spirit of God planning before the foundations of the earth your salvation, my salvation. And Father, Son, and Spirit in agreement said, yes, this is worth doing. And here's the horrible cost that will have to be paid to make it effective. And the Father and the Spirit were in favor of it, a favor of it and the Son said, yes, send me. I'm ready for this. And we have that same heart and mind in Isaiah, back in Isaiah 6, I think it's 6, 9, 6, 8 or 6, 9, where Isaiah says the same thing. God's saying, I got things to say, who can I send? And Isaiah raises his hand and says, here I am, send me. And in that simple moment, Isaiah reflects at a very imperfect level. He, re, he reflects the very heart of Jesus Christ. Father, if you have a purpose, here I am. Send me. And now Jesus is taking that incredible concept that the Father sent him with a purpose. And now he's talking to you and he's talking to me. And he says, Father, in the same way you sent me, I'm sending Reg." In the same way you sent me, I'm sending Susan. In the same way you sent me, I'm, say, I'm sending Bubba. Father, in the same way you sent me, I'm sending Cindy. Father, in the same way you sent me, I'm sending my sons and daughters. And that recognition that Jesus is saying, there is a shared purpose to this. The thing you sent me for, I'm now sending them. Go to Matthew 28. Last chapter of Matthew. And again, a passage that we're very familiar with because it matters. Uh, it's a powerful assignment and it's a powerful equipping. So in Matthew 28, Jesus has now spent about 40 days with the disciples after his resurrection. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I think those would have been some incredible 40 days to be there for. That here they are walking occasionally. It wasn't like they were with Jesus for 40 days, but scattered throughout those 40 days where Jesus appeared to the disciples a variety of times. Paul tells us there was once where over 500 believers were present when Jesus appeared. So it wasn't just to the 11, it wasn't just to a small gathering, that was usually true, 
But even to 500 believers, Jesus appeared after his resurrection. And now that 40 days has come to an end, and Jesus is getting ready to rise into heaven. And starting in verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we could probably do a whole series of sermons on just those three verses. But to try to summarize that real quick, Jesus is, is making a declaration that, that Ephesians 1 and other passages talk about the fact that because Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and perfectly sacrif uh, that sacrifice perfectly satisfying to the Father, that God bestowed, bestowed on Jesus full authority above every name, every power, every dominion, every authority in the universe was placed under Jesus' feet at his resurrection. That's a real thing. And Jesus is saying, because all authority has been given to me, now I'm sending you. That it, this sending, this sending that you and I are called to, and that Jesus is, is agreeing with the Father in that final prayer, this sending is backed by his power and authority. And the specifics of this command as he sends us, he says, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So again, that, that recognition, he's not saying, go out and start a church. Go out and start a religious institution. Go out and, and start a worldwide organization. He's saying, you know what? Here's what you guys have become. And actually in that circle, I'm sure that there were many of the women that had become disciples of Jesus too. You men and women have become my disciples. Now go out as you go and make more disciples. And there's some specifics to this. Teach them to be disciplined followers of Jesus. Remind them to be baptized as an expression of their submission to my authority and their entrance into my body. And then teach them this. Teach them to do what I command. So again, Jesus isn't just saying, build me a large organization with a lot of members. He's saying, touch lives, impact lives, bring lives into my presence for transformation. That they will become my disciples. They will be committed to the process of growing up to be like Jesus Christ. And that means everything I've said will matter to them. And that that gets to be part of your vision and my vision of discipleship is that everything the Word of God teaches should matter to me. And plenty of times through the years, I, I've heard some believer, now I have never said this, but the truth is the struggle has been in my heart. But some believers have even said it out loud. I don't like this part. I'm going to ignore that part. I don't like that part. I don't like what he commands here. It doesn't fit my philosophy. It will be too hard. God is unrealistic to make that command or expectation a part of my life. 
And that's when I have to remember that Jesus said this. Now, as you go making disciples and you're bringing them into this process, remember this. I have all power and authority. And I'm sharing that with you. And the life of a, of a Christian in Galatians 2.20, we quoted that verse probably hundreds of times in the years past. But where Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ, Christ who comes with all power and all authority, Christ now lives in me. And the life I now live in, the, in this flesh, this body, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we're making disciples, we're not saying grit your teeth and try real hard to be good. What we're, what we're teaching disciples and learning for ourselves is good is not possible for us apart from the help and the power and the righteousness and the faith and dependence and immersion into Jesus Christ and abiding in his word and abiding in his love. So we're, we're spreading a mystery that's different than a religion. But Jesus is saying, because I have all power, I'm sending you to go do the spreading of that mystery. Go to Acts chapter 1. And this is basically that same moment. But Luke is giving us a little different aspect of that conversation. Starting in verse 7. Because the disciples were asking, well, actually, let's read verse 6 for the context. Acts 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they were meeting him after his 40 days. They were asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And one thing that we see frequently about the disciples that we get to recognize is how frequently, despite the amazing things God had shown them and done, how frequently their vision goes back to a small picture. And they're saying, is this when you're going to put Israel on top of the world again? Is this when we're going to finally reign as a nation over all these other heathen nations? Is this finally when that millennial kingdom promised in, in the Old Testament to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all those guys finally going to happen? And Jesus' answer is, you don't need to know when that's going to happen. Come on, Jesus. We really want to see that happen. And Jesus isn't giving them a smaller thing. He's giving them a larger thing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the world. And one of the things that's interesting here is he goes ahead and he starts small. Well, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And some of the disciples might have been thinking, I can do that. And in all Judea. Yeah, I love my country. I, I can spread the gospel through my country. And in Samaria, Jesus was messing with them. And many of you know this, in John 4, 9, we won't go there yet. I mean, we won't go there right now. But in John 4, 9, Jesus was, was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Samaritan woman herself was shocked that Jesus was talking to her. Because the Jews and the Samaritans had a long-standing history of enmity 
against each other. That the Samaritans worship God on a different mountain. Well, that's really important. And, and the Jews were in the temple, on the temple mount, worshiping God. Where, where David had been told to build the temple. And because of that enmity of method and location, they were separate and hated each other. There were Jews that would literally add extra days to their journey to go around Samaria rather than cut through Samaria to get to a destination. They didn't want their feet to touch that filthy dirt. And Jesus said, oh, and you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. And I'm sure at least a couple of the disciples looked at each other like, maybe we could send you. I'll be in Jerusalem. Because Jesus is now pushing their comfort. I might send you to places you're not comfortable going. I might send you to people that in the natural flesh, in the natural way of the world, you don't want to share the gospel with them. But don't forget, I'm the one with authority and I'm sending you. And then he enlarges that picture amazingly when he says, and to the remotest part of the world. And uh, I even thought about looking this up. I didn't. Of how many languages the word of God has been translated into. Anybody have a clue? Anybody know? Uh, don't start Googling it now. I don't want to lose you. Uh, but that Wycliffe and, and other ministries have been translating the word of God because the goal is that every people group and every language group would have the word of God in their own language. And Jesus even promised and said, you know what? The end of this age won't come until the entire world has heard the gospel. And we're within a hair's breadth of getting that done. Breadth. Hair doesn't breathe. A hair's breadth. Hard to get that D in there. But that recognition that he's saying, I'm sending you everywhere. Even the places you're not comfortable. Even the places that you don't believe they're going to hear it. You don't believe they're going to believe it. You don't believe they're going to receive it. I'm sending you there too. One area that is, that is really amazing, and we've talked about this before, um, is how the gospel is spreading in Iran. How the gospel is spreading in Saudi Arabia. How the gospel is spreading in countries that are dedicated to the spread of Islam. And right in the middle of the cradle of Islam, the gospel is spreading. And here's how it's spreading. It's not spreading because we built churches. It's not spreading because we sent a bunch of missionaries with a good budget. It's not spreading because missionary planes are landing with lots of Bibles. It's spreading because somebody prayed for the truth. <laughs> they had a dream about Jesus Christ. And they gave their heart to him. And somebody on their way to be killed for their faith in Jesus. Said the gospel out loud. And a guard, these are true stories, and a guard said, I want what that woman has. The gospel is being spread through persecution, through dreams and visions, through a scrap of the Bible being shared hand to hand. And it's genuinely and effectively spreading. 
right in Samaria. And that recognition that God is saying, when he says, for God so loved the world, he's saying, don't you dare block any part of that world off from the confidence of my love. So you may not be able to go, but you can pray. And maybe somebody will get to go. I know I've shared this story, but we had a friend, we had a family in Hawaii that we were friends with. And, and we counted her a friend, even though she was just a child. We had a friend named Cindy who was telling everybody she was going to be a missionary to China. Communist China. And I, I know of at least two or three people who said, you know, sweetheart, uh, that might not be possible. It's very cool that you have that heart. It's, it's neat that you want to be a missionary to China. You know, and we'll keep praying, but that may not happen. So throughout her growing up and her discipling and her maturing as a believer and her preparation for missionary work, she had one single vision that she'd had since she was a child. I'm going to be a missionary in China. When she graduated as a teacher of English as a foreign language, the communist Chinese government paid for her to come to China and teach university students English, and they allowed her to use whatever reading material she wanted. Now, that door is closing again, but she and other members of her family had a long opportunity of years and she married a husband who was dedicated to that same vision. And we have people in our own church fellowship um, that are dedicated to that ministry and have been in communist China. God can get the gospel anywhere. And when doors close, people are still there who can pass that truth on hand to hand, mouth to ear. So when Jesus says, I have power, I have authority to send this gospel anywhere in the world I want it, we get to say, I agree with you. I believe you. And like Isaiah, we get to say, Lord, send me. And your Samaria might be the office. Your Samaria might be campus. Your Samaria might be a neighbor who's obnoxious and unpleasant. Your Samaria might be somebody somewhere around you that doesn't make it easy, but that you represent something. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But then it's really amazing because in Matthew 5, he flips it around. In fact, let's read that. Let's go to Matthew 5. So again, John 8, 12 is where he says, I'm the light of the world. But listen to this in verse 13 of Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father 
who is in heaven. And Jesus is giving this sending to every believer so that every believer can say, I'm sent to my location. Now, there may come a day when God taps me on the shoulder and says, you're going to Bolivia or you're going to Russia. You're going to Siberia. You're, you're going to communist China. You're going to North Korea. Yes. I'll come visit you. And that recognition that God can send his sons and daughters anywhere he decides to send them. And he's looking for the heart of Isaiah that would say, send me. But for most of us, it means, Father, while I'm going into my day, send me. Just while I'm going into my day, send me. While I'm hanging out at Home Depot for four hours, looking for things I don't need to buy. While, while I'm at H-E-B for three and a half minutes, getting what I have to get. That my heart stands ready. And this is what, what God commanded in 1 Peter 3.15, which we, we studied in depth a, way, a little ways back. But in 1 Peter 3.15, where he says, always be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. And, and as we talked about then, that's worth pondering. Father, if I'm going to be ready to give an account for the hope that is in me, someone's got to notice that I have hope. If I look hopeless, they're not going to come up to me, Reg, you look pretty hopeless. But do you know some secret about hope that isn't visible in your life that I'd like to know about? <laughs> that moment won't happen. So we get to recognize believers get to struggle with everything that non-believers struggle with. We struggle with anxiety. We struggle with depression. We struggle with tragedy, with sorrow, with loss, with discouragement. We struggle with all of those things. And we still get to say, but there is a hopefulness to my struggle because of who I belong to. So I'm going to go through this journey, but different than someone else who lives in despair, I have a vision of growth through my anxiety or my depression or my sorrow or my grief or my loss or my discouragement. I have a vision of God maturing me into the mind of Jesus Christ that is full of hope. And the Holy Spirit will equip me so that just because I'm growing, not because I'm finished, because I'm willing to grow, that someone notices that growth and hope and says, how are you doing that? And then we're ready to give an account for the hope that is in us. And I, I think Joe shared this in our Sunday school class. That even if, if I forgive somebody, they sin against me and I forgive them. That should be a moment when I'm clarifying that my forgiveness isn't because I'm a nice guy. My forgiveness is because I've received this incredible outpouring of grace and forgiveness from God. And I must Forgive the person who sins against me. Once I really comprehend what I'm receiving in grace, I must give it away. I must share it. And that might be the moment, the moment when someone goes, where's that coming from? And even if they don't, the Holy Spirit might nag them for years to come that they know that felt supernatural. I know what I did, and I know they had no reason to forgive me, and they did anyway, and then they said it was because of Jesus. 
So that our readiness could apply to a lot of moments that we might not expect. So that we could share something with some friends or neighbors or relatives. Something we're going through. And we're free to grieve and we're free to cry and we're, we're free to be in pain. But they still see that there's some vision of something we're aiming for. That we're expecting to mature in something. We're expecting deliverance and purpose. That even in the worst moment, I have a God who has promised to accomplish good purpose in my life. Through the ugliest tragedy or wrong or injustice. So that that wrong or that tragedy or, or that injustice does not define my thinking. The promise and the hopefulness of my Savior defines my thinking while I deal with that thing. And then someone might think or say, where does that come from? So that Jesus is saying, don't hide that light under a bushel. Do not be ashamed to tell someone where your hope comes from. Do not be ashamed to tell someone why you can grieve and still have hope. Do not be ashamed to tell someone that yes, you absolutely screwed up and they caught you at it and you're wrong and you have to ask them for forgiveness, but you're still thanking God for his forgiveness with gratitude and hope and they want to know where that comes from. So every moment of our life, success or failure, growth or stumbling, amazingly Wonderful day or a horribly tragic day provides the opportunity where we get to be light and salt and do our sending. Be the one who's sent. So as Jesus prays this prayer, I think I need to hire a secretary to do my notes. We'll see how that works out. But that as Jesus is praying this prayer, He's actually reminding us, Father, you sent me with great purpose. And I want my sons and daughters to remember this. I'm not just saving them. Yes, they are saved. And once they're mine, they're mine permanently. And I will never leave them and never forsake them. But I want every single one of them to grow this mindset that you and I now see ourselves as the ones who are sent. And as we've talked about before, not everybody's an evangelist. Not everybody's meant to be an apologist or be able to answer everybody's Bible questions. But every believer knows enough. If all I know is, okay, how did I become a believer? Oh, I believed in this and I prayed this. I'm ready to be a witness. That's all I need to know to be a witness. And if somebody says, well, that's great. So believe this, pray that. Just like the passage that Artem read for us this morning. Let's go back to that passage. Romans 9. And actually, we'll just read the part out of Romans 10. Starting at verse 8. But what does it say? The, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I like that. He didn't say odds are good. He, he doesn't waffle on this. Did you confess this? Did you believe this? 
you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings, good things. And that's an interesting way to put it that we don't talk anymore. How beautiful are the feet of those? And, and it's basically saying, I see someone walking toward me that has good news. How beautiful their feet are. Not because their feet are pretty, but because of the news they're bringing. You are a congregation of beautiful feet. I don't know if you have ever thought of it that way, and you never have to think of it that way again, necessarily. <laughs> but that you're recognizing, I have good news to tell the world. Not because of me. And again, when Jesus did that great commission in Matthew 28, he didn't say, I'm sending you because you're powerful. He didn't say, I'm sending you because you're good. I didn't, I, he didn't say, I'm sending you because you're finished and you look really impressive to the world. He said, I'm sending you effectively because I'm powerful. And so that recognition, my feet are beautiful because of the message I bring, not because I'm finished and polished, not because I'm the final product of spiritual growth. I'm, I'm just somewhere along the journey, but I have good news to share. Let's pray together. Father, we know these things. We've heard them before and we will need to hear them again. But Father, it's always good to be reminded from your word, from your spirit, that we are a called people. That first we're called by name to come be your sons and daughters. And then we are called and sent to be light to a dark world. And Father, it is a dark world. This world is full of evil. And, and the preachers of evil are bold. The spreaders of evil are not shy. The preachers and the practitioners of evil, Father, they are proud and they put it out there for the whole world. And they take glee and joy in defying you. Father, that just in recent days, a prominent young man made it, made it clear that he's proud to be an atheist and he has no fear of burning in hell. And he said it to an entire nation. And Father, we need to be that bold. Without being obnoxious. Without being insulting. That we just recognize people are dying for the truth. People are dying for you, Jesus. And we happen to know you. We happen to be the light of the world. That could illuminate their understanding. And help them see you. 
And Father, I pray that you would help us that, that we would each recognize that we have different gifts. We have a variety of different callings and we don't have to pretend to be someone else. But that everywhere we go, we're ready to give an account for the hope that is in us. And we're ready to keep growing lives that show that hope. Because we know you and we're getting to know you even better. Day by day, we're getting to know you even better. Thank you that you brought all power to this sending, Jesus. Father, we agree on these things together. We're just little human beings. Weak and frail, fallible, imperfect. But we are seated in Christ, Father, at your right hand where we have power to be effective witnesses in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things and agree on these things. Amen.